I thought we were going to have um, a lot of snow the way the week started, but um, the weather is not too bad, and uh, at least we thank God for that. Yeah. Amen. Um, so as Christmas is fast approaching, it is expedient as believers that we remind ourselves for why we celebrate this uh, important season. Um, uh, on Friday, I was just joking with my wife in the car that in fact, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, the fact that he gives you the most holy days in a year, right? Because of him, we have the season of Christmas and we have Easter holidays. He gives us the most holidays in a year. That is how powerful he is. He affects the calendar that we have. Amen. And, and sometimes we can get carried away by the fun activities and the euphoria that comes with Christmas that we forget the significance of the first advent of our Lord. In the next three Sundays, I'm going to focus entirely on the person of Jesus. Usually, we, we like to hear messages that will tell us what God will do for us, but sometimes it's okay to hear what God has done for you. Amen. So, I'm going to focus entirely on the person of Jesus Christ and um, some of the truths that we must hold dear as it pertains to Christmas. Today, I'm speaking on... A sermon that I've prepared for a long time, but I've shelved it. And today, I feel like this is the best time for it. I'm speaking on what I've titled, Jesus, the yes and amen of God. Jesus, the yes and amen of God. Turn your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, we are reading from chapter 1, verses 17 to 20. Jesus, the yes and amen of God. So Paul speaking to the church in Corinth says, Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That there should be yes, yes, and no, no. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Hallelujah. The second epistle of Paul to the church in Corinth is, is sometimes known as a comfort letter. From the time that Paul wrote his first letter to the church, what had happened was that false teachers had crept into the church in Corinth. And they had swayed the church and lied to the people against the apostle Paul. And they claimed that Paul was fickle. Paul was proud. He was unimpressive in appearance and his speech. You know, when you read the writings of Paul, you get the sense that this man is a bold and big man. But when Paul appears, he was a short man, a diminutive figure, and it is believed that he even had a speech impairment. So they, they would say that he is unimpressive when he stands before us. Apollos is a man mighty in speech and mighty in deed. Paul is a fickle man. He makes plans and he will change the plans again. And so they led the church against the apostle Paul. And Paul sent Titus to the church to go and set things in order. And Titus comes back and gives a report of the fact that when he came to give them and set them in order, they have repented. 
They have changed their ways. So Paul is writing this letter to comfort them and thank them for their repentance. And also those who have not repented, encourage them to change. Right? So this is what Paul is doing in the entire book of 2 Corinthians. But in a portion that we just read, Paul is explaining to them why he didn't show up. Because he had promised them that he is going to Macedonia. And on his way to Macedonia, he would pass through Corinth before he gets to Macedonia. And on his way back from Macedonia, he would be going to Judea. And on his way to Judea, he would pass through them and they would help him. That means they would give him an offering and he would go and go and help the church in Jerusalem, in Judea. Hallelujah. So that was Paul's plans. And Paul apparently did not show up. So in the verse 17, he says, Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I planned, do I do it according to the flesh? That there should be in me, that there should be with me, yes, yes, and no, no. You see, what Paul is saying is that the part of the accusations is that he's a fickle man. But he's saying that his change of plans is not a sign of fickleness or vacillations in him. He did not say yes when he meant to say no. Because some of us, that's how we are. When somebody is standing in front of you, you can't say yes or you can't say what's on your heart. Paul says that I'm not that kind of person. I did not say yes when I meant to say no. And I will not say no when I mean to say yes. The NLT puts it in a way that renders the explanation clearly. He says, you may be asking why I changed my plans. Do you think I make my plans carelessly? Do you think I'm like the people of the world who say yes when they really mean no? So that's what Paul is saying here. And he's saying that he is not a fickle person, not just by his character traits, but he is grounded in the person of God. And he says, but as God is faithful, our word which was to you, that means when we came and we preached to you, we did not preach a message that was sometimes yes and sometimes no. But for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus. Silvanus is the one we read in the book of Acts called Silas. The same person here. So, so Silvanus and Timothy was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God the Father. My emphasis this morning is on the verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. When you read through the Bible, very soon you notice that God likes to enter relationships with people. And he enters various relationships. Some of these relationships are special relationships that we call covenants. A covenant is basically a contract or an agreement between two parties. The covenant states the responsibilities that both parties are to play, and there are rewards and benefits for following the terms of the covenant. When God enters covenants, these covenants are usually backed by promises. God always makes a promise when he engages people in a covenant. And because God is faithful, he is always going to keep his end of the covenant. God will always keep his end of the bargain. Are we together? And even when the other party is unfaithful, God will always keep his end of the, of the bargain. 
Because if you read the book of um, uh, First Timothy, the Bible says that for God cannot deny himself. Even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. He says, if you deny me, I will deny you. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. But when he says, even when we are unfaithful, that part, he says, but God cannot deny himself. He always remains faithful. So whatever God has promised you, whatever covenant God has made with you, whatever promise of God you are holding on to in his word, one of the things that we must remember is that God is faithful. And the apostle Paul says something interesting here. He says all of God's promises, in him they are yes. He's speaking about Christ Jesus here. He says all of God's promises that God has ever made, God will ever make. All the promises in Christ Jesus, they are yes. And in him, they are amen. When God makes you a promise, Jesus is the yes of that promise. When God makes you a promise, Jesus is the amen of that promise. You see, the word amen in Hebrew is the word that means firm, sure. Or sometimes it's even translated faithful. When Jesus Christ was teaching, and one of the, the, the signature statements of Jesus is he would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. The, 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 the Greek for verily, verily is the word amen, amen. So when Jesus starts a statement and he says, amen, amen, let go. Verily, verily, I say to you. He's trying to tell you that what he's saying is firm and what he's saying is sure. In, in the, in the uh, Old Testament, especially when you read Psalm 42, Psalm 72, there are prayers and there are declarations and they will end it with a statement, amen. Because when they finish their prayers, even till today we do it. When we say amen, we are saying, let it be so. So the word amen says, the word amen means let what we have said be sure. Let it be firm and let it be so. In fact, Jesus Christ even refers to himself as the amen of God. In Revelation chapter number 3, Revelation 3 verse 14, one of the ways Jesus refers to himself, you see, when Jesus was writing to the church in uh, Laodicea, the lukewarm church, He's introducing himself. One of the things that he does is that for every church that he speaks to in the book of Revelation, he introduces a certain side and aspect of himself. And that is the aspect of himself that will deal with that church if they are not in line with what he's saying. But look at what he says. He says, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. So Jesus Christ is in this portion referring to himself as the amen. Paul says all of God's promises in Christ Jesus, in him they are yes, and in him they are amen. So when we say that Jesus is the yes and amen, what we are saying is that all the covenant promises that God has made, they find their confirmation, they find their fulfillment, and they find their means of fulfillment in the person of of Jesus Christ. Outside of Jesus Christ, we don't have a hope. Because it is in Jesus Christ that we have our yes and amen. In, on Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I want us to begin to remember is that the day Jesus was born, our yes and amen was born. The day Jesus appeared on the scene is the day we got our ultimate yes. And the day we got our ultimate amen. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. 
One of the things that um, uh, the Apostle Matthew does is that he introduces Jesus, first of all, with the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus. Who begat who, who begat who, who begat who. I know those are the portions of our Bible we don't like reading. Right? But there are, there, are, there are key markers in there. The names that are put in there are not put there for any reason at all. They are important and they are, they, are, they are clues to tell us what is going to happen along the line in the story. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, the apostle Matthew says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Before he goes on to tell us who begat who, and Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begat um, Jacob and Esau, Jacob begat the 12 tribes, and Judah begat Pharaoh. and before he goes into all of that, he says Jesus Christ is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why does he start there? It's, it's very important, because for Matthew, Jesus Christ is coming to do something that is related with the covenants that God has made to David and God has made to Abraham. So when he starts there, he, that's the, the beginning of the New Testament. So the moment you pick your New Testament and you read that the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, what the author is trying to do for you is that he's trying to tell you before you start reading Jesus, go and read Abraham, go and read David. Because they are important to what Jesus is about to come and do. In the Old Testament, there are four main covenants that God enters with people. The first covenant we see, the, by what I mean by main covenants, these are the explicitly stated covenants. These are the covenants that are clear and bare for us to see. The first one is the covenant that God enters in with Noah after the flood. Where God makes a covenant with Noah that as long as heaven and earth remain, he will no longer destroy the earth with the waters of decreation. He's not going to destroy the earth in a deluge again. Right? So he gives him the sign of the rainbow and he enters a covenant with him. That covenant was given and fulfilled in that instant. Are we together? The second covenant we see, however, is the covenant that God enters in with Abraham. Genesis 12 obviously begins after Genesis 11, which comes before 10. The whole story of mankind starts, we fall by Genesis 3. By Genesis 4, we begin to see the effects of the fall. Cain kills his brother Abel. Uh, in 5, some people begin to call the name of the Lord. 6, there is rebellion in the heavenlies and on the earth as well. 7, there comes a man named Nimrod and all the things that surround Nimrod, the wickedness of the earth. Noah comes and Noah is, is, is uh, the only righteous one. God saves Noah out of the flood. God gives Noah an instruction. They should go out, be fruitful, and multiply. But human beings rather gather in one place and they begin to build a ziggurat, a tower to the heavens, so that they can tame God. That is what that, act, that, is what that structure they were doing was. It was a structure that they used to build back in the day. They called them ziggurats. They built them to, to tame the powers of the God. So those who have been given an instruction to scatter have come together and they want to tame God. And God comes and scatters them. And in their, in their scattering, uh, they form all nations, all wickedness, and all things that are going on. And God comes and in, the, in the tribe, of, in the family lineage of Shem, the son of Noah. right? Because Noah blesses Shem. And Shem's son 
uh, one of Shem's sons is uh, Abraham's father. And Abraham, God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says that, I'm going to enter an agreement with you. The agreement is this, Genesis 12, 2 to 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The word that repeats itself the most there is the word blessed. So this covenant has to do with a blessing, right? The most important part of the covenant is the last line. That in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because out of Eden, there has been a curse that is affecting all humanity. And God has come to Abraham and he has entered a specific covenant with Abraham that I am going to do something with you. There will be an agreement between you and I, Abraham. And in that agreement, the end result is that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis 22, 15 to 18, this is just the scene after Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Uh, most of us are familiar with the story. Abraham obeys God, and God comes to Abraham again, and God reiterates the terms of the covenant again. He says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, in blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sun which is at the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Hallelujah. So that the, the most important part here again is, in your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So what is this blessing that God has promised Abraham? That is the most important part of this covenant. It is that human beings will be made right with God again. Because at the fall, there was separation. We were kicked out of the garden. You see, one of the things we must understand is that the garden of Eden was not man's home. God made the earth for man. Eden was for God. That is why when man sinned, God didn't sack man from the earth, but he sacked him from Eden. Because Eden is the place where I dwell. You cannot dwell there if you are in sin. So there is separation from Eden, and God places a cherub at the, at the uh, entrance of Eden so that no one can come in without going through the cherub. And the cherub has a flaming sword, and that sword goes in every direction. That means if you come to God's presence uninvited, you will die. That is why when God appears to Abraham and he's going to make a covenant with Abraham, he says, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Why does God start with shield? Because I am bringing you to my presence. If I don't shield you, you will die. So he says, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. So God starts with Abraham from that point. And Abraham believed God. And the Bible says it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham has a first taste of this blessing that God is going to give us. The blessing that one day all the world is going to taste of being made right with God again. So as we read the story of Abraham, we begin to see that all the things that God is saying is coming to pass. I will give you a child, he has Isaac. I will make you a great nation. The, 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 his descendants become the nation of Israel. But we are still waiting for the final part of the blessing. That all the nations of this world will be blessed and come to be in relationship with God. 
So when Matthew says that Jesus, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, he's trying to tell you that the missing part that we were waiting for when we ended at Malachi, waiting for all the nations of the earth to be blessed, Jesus Christ is coming to walk and fulfill that part of the covenant. Hallelujah. So in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is explaining what Jesus Christ has done in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. And in Galatians chapter 3 from 3 to 14, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curse this everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Sometimes we read this and we think that the blessing of Abraham there is wealth. This blessing is not wealth. The blessing is justification without works. That we have been made right with God and we didn't have to work for it. Amen. Are we together? It says that, that through Christ we might receive the blessing of Abraham and the promise of the Spirit might come up on us through faith. You see, when we receive Jesus Christ, because now we have been made right with God, the Holy Spirit can dwell in us. Are we together? And that is the blessing of Abraham. In Galatians 3.16, Galatians 3.16, Paul says, And now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say seeds, as to many, but seed as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So when God was making the promise, you see, sometimes we don't read the Bible with the anticipation the authors want us to read. When God makes the promise, what we are supposed to do when we are reading is, every time a seed emerges in the line of Abraham, we have to pay attention and find out, is it through this person that's there? whole world will be blessed. So we look at Isaac. Isaac's life goes, it's like it's eventful, it's uneventful. Then Jacob comes. Jacob's life goes, it's like it's going to be eventful, it's uneventful. Then the whole nation comes. God enters a covenant with the nation of Israel again, but the covenant with the nation of Israel is a subset of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. The only reason why God is in a covenant relationship with them is because they are in a, he's in a covenant relationship with Abraham. And the covenant promise that God makes them is that they shall be a light to the nations if they obey the terms of the covenant, which is equal to what God told Abraham, that through you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. Right. So even in Israel, we begin to look and we are searching. Who is going to be that one through whom all the nations of the world shall be blessed? And we look and it's like Israel goes into captivity. The chapter is closed. There is no hope. Then comes Jesus. And the Bible says, through him, we receive the promise of Abraham. And in Galatians 3.29, the Bible says, and if you are Christ's, that means if you belong to Christ Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That means anyone who becomes a, a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in Jesus Christ, because of Jesus, you now come into the place where you are an heir of the promise that God made to Abraham. Are we together? So when it comes to the covenant that God made with Abraham, Jesus is our yes and amen. The next covenant 
that Matthew is keying us in is the covenant that God makes with King David. You know, David is the greatest king to ever rule in Israel. When David ruled, he never lost a battle. The emergence of, you see, when, when David emerged on the scene, his main emergence to Israel was his slaying of Goliath. Goliath had been a terror in the side of the nation of Israel for 40 days, screaming, send me your best challenger. Send me your best fighter. And let us end it. Let us not engage in unnecessary battle. Send me your best. And I will fight him. If he wins, then we, we the Philistines, become your servant. If I win, you become our servant. And David emerges and kills Goliath. David rules and he's a good shepherd over God's people. And David builds God a house. He, in fact, he, he tries to build the house. But when he's going to build it, God stops him because his hands have shed blood. So he provides and Solomon comes to build. But God still sees David's heart and his intentions. And David goes to God in prayer and God comes to David and enters a covenant with David. And God says to David, 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 to 13, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. You know, sometimes when we read this, we think it's immediately talking about Solomon, right? But Solomon does not reign forever. So it cannot be about Solomon. In Psalm 132, from 11 to 12, when the, the, the Levites are reflecting on the promise and the covenant that God had made to Abraham, this, uh, to David, this is what he says. He says, the Lord has sworn in truth to David, and he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my commandment and my testimony which I will teach them, their sons shall also sit upon your throne forevermore. So God's covenant with David is this, that he's going to set on the throne of David one that will come from David's own body and he would reign forevermore. You see, one of the things we must understand about the concept of sonship in the Bible is that when they say somebody is the son of another person, that means you do what the person does. So that is why when Jesus comes in John 5 and he says that God is his father, the Jews immediately take stones to kill him because by saying God is his father, he's saying he's equal with God. Right? So when God says he's going to send a son of David, that means when that person comes, he'll do what David did. What did David do? David brought liberation to the children of Israel. What did David do? David was a good shepherd to the people. Right? So if, if, even if when you read Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel 34, verse 23, he says, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. At this point in time, David is dead and gone. But God is saying that they, he's going to send one shepherd. And this shepherd will, will feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. That's why when Jesus Christ came, when Jesus Christ says, I am the good shepherd. He's keying you back to this, right? But this is why we need to read our Bible very carefully. So Jesus does not make statements for making statements sick. Are you together? So the covenant promise, this covenant promise that God gave to um, David is what gave birth to what is known as the messianic hope. You know, the word Messiah simply means the anointed one, right? It's from the Hebrew word memshak, which is to smear or to anoint, 
Right. And in, in the land of Israel, only three people were anointed for service, primarily. The priest, the king, and the prophet. Right. So if we are waiting for a king, that means we are waiting for an anointed one to come our way. So when we say Jesus Christ is the Messiah, what we are saying that he's the anointed one. That's all. So they started waiting and anticipating a figure that would come in the line of David. And you begin to follow, just like we are supposed to follow the lineage of Abraham. Now in Abraham's family, we have entered into a unique family in Abraham's family. In the line of David. And we are supposed to follow the trajectory of the lineage of David. So Solomon comes. Will it be Solomon? Solomon goes the way of all men. Marries too many wives. He, he follows the, the gods of his wives and he eventually dies. Sometimes I wonder if Solomon even ever made heaven. Because when he died, he had, was worshipping idols when he died. Which is sad. right? God, God's pet name for Solomon was Jedediah, which means lover of God. But this man died a lover of many women. Right? Be careful where you set your love. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over. Rehoboam, young, petulant, and stupid, comes over and he increases the taxes in the land. They come and they are saying that your... your your father was even increasing the tax and we're complaining and he reduced it for us. Why, why, are you, why are you increasing it more? And he says, if my father whipped you with normal whips, I will whip you with scorpion tails. And, and because of Jeroboam's petulance and stupidity, there was a, a revolt that was led and it led to the split of the nation. Right? So we have the northern kingdom that split and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom became uh, Israel with the capital of Samaria. The southern kingdom became Judah with the capital in Jerusalem. Right. And the northern tribes too went the way of idolatry. So they were changing dynasties. Every, any family can come kill the existing king and their family becomes kings. And that was how it was going in the northern tribe. But in the southern kingdom of Judah, the throne of David was still established. Everyone who sat on the throne in the southern kingdom of Judah sat on the throne of David. They were all from David's family. All to the point where we get to Zedekiah during the time of um, prophet Jeremiah. So I'm giving you a crash course on the Bible. So we get to the time of um, Jeremiah. And when we get to Jeremiah's time, the nation of Judah, which is, at, at this time about a a uh, hundred years earlier, the entire northern kingdom has been wiped out by the Assyrians. Then the Babylonians come and they lay siege over Babylon, or, uh, over Jerusalem at the time. So they take the southern kingdom, and Zedekiah, who is the last king of, um, uh, in David's bloodline, is also taken into captivity. So if you are following the promise of God, at this point in time, there is no hope. Because the covenant that God has made to David has been wiped out. The entire nation has gone into captivity in Babylon. But during the times where they were sinning, going back and forth, there was a prophecy that came from the prophet Isaiah. We usually read it around this time in Christmas. Right? Isaiah gave them a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. He says, For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. You see, the child was born, but the son was given because the son has always been. Are we together? 
He says, for unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his kingdom and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, forever, even forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So it says, in the midst of all that is going on, there is coming an individual. The son will be given. The child will be born. Are we together? It says, he will sit upon the throne of David and rule forever and ever. So when we fast forward to the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, when Angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and it's announcing to Mary that Mary will give birth to a, a, a child of the Holy Spirit. He says, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus is not just the seed of Abraham. He is also the seed of David. He is the promised seed of David. So when Jesus comes, he not only makes us right with God. Like God promised Abraham. But he is the one who destroys the powers of darkness. Just like Abraham, David came on the scene and Goliath was shouting, Who can defeat me? Who can beat us? Who can defeat my powers? And David comes and slays Goliath with just a little stone. Jesus comes on the scene and the devil who has been making noise all this while, the devil who has been tormenting mankind, Jesus comes on the scene and everywhere that humanity failed, Jesus champions. Jesus is the yes and amen of the promise to David. He rules and reigns forevermore. He makes us right with God. He has conquered sin. He has conquered the devil. And he has conquered death. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, John the Revelator is carried by the Spirit into the throne room of God. And this is actually a very beautiful scene for me in the Bible. And he comes to the place where worship is going on, but he sees something interesting. Revelation 5, from, I read from verse 1. He says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to lose its seals? You see, the scroll, the person sitting on the throne there is God, the Father. And the scroll that God is holding is the plans and the purposes that must unfold in time. Right? And, and it will come to pass. But John is saying that we cannot see what is inside. How do we prepare? We, we cannot know the plans of God. What do we do about it? And an angel is proclaiming, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to lose its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth 
was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. John said, I started crying. I was weeping because the, 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 the secret, the most important thing we need is available and there is no one. And he starts weeping. And whilst he was weeping, one of the elders, the 24 elders comes and taps him on the shoulder. And he says, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and lose its seals. This morning, there's no need to cry. There is no need to be down. It doesn't matter what you are going through in this season. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. Jesus has loosened the seals. So I don't know the promises of God that you are holding on to. I don't know why you are weeping in this season. But because Jesus Christ was born, on the day that Jesus was born, in a manger, we had the yes and amen of God. On the day that Jesus was born, God was giving us a reminder that it doesn't matter what I have said. 400 years may pass. 4,000 years may pass. But I still hold on to my end of the bargain. You see, human beings, we are fickle. Because sometimes, and I've seen this several times, somebody would make a promise to his best friend that as long as we are alive today, whatever any one of us passes away, we'll take care of each other's children. Then, then the, the, one of the friends pass, and you're handed over to your friend. But because his friend is no longer around, he doesn't hold on to his end of the bargain. When God made a promise with Abraham, Abraham died, but God was still holding on to his promise. When God made a promise with David, David died and went. His people were disobedient, but God says, I am the faithful one. I still hold on to my end of the bargain. So this morning, I came to remind you that in this season of Christmas, we have our yes. And we have our amen. It doesn't matter what's happening around us. The devil may whisper in your ear, will God do it? Tell him I have my yes and I have my amen. Every 25th December is a time for us to remember that we have our yes and we have our amen. So if God says you'll be healed, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If God says, I will provide for you, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If God says, I will open that door, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If God says, I will be there for you, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. For all the promises of God in Christ Jesus, they are yes and in him are amen. Our God is good. Our God is faithful. He will never deny himself. He will always be there for us. So in this season of Christmas, don't cast your head down. Don't be sad. Things may not be going the way you expected to do, go. Things may be hard. But at least you have the yes. And at least you have the amen. You have the yes and amen. Our last scripture. It says, this is a faithful saying. 2 Timothy 2.11. This is a faithful saying. 
If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he stops there. Because what do you think should appear over there? He says, if we deny him, he will deny us. But he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. We have a reason to rejoice, believers. We have a reason to rejoice. Christmas is a time of hope. Christmas is a season of joy. Because when Jesus was born, God gave us our final yes. Whenever God makes you a promise, once you're a believer, just rejoice. Rejoice. It's like when the richest man in the world gives you a check and you look at the amount of zeros, you don't bother about how big the check is because you know that he can pay. When God gives you a promise, it's not that he can pay. He has paid. It has already been paid for. It is already settled. You see, sometimes when we say um, God is our provider, we, we, uh, we say Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. That is not what the Bible says. When Abraham went to the mountain, all this while, the ram was already there. Before he came with Isaac, the ram was waiting for them. He had not seen it. So, he says, and he called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. For it is written, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That means God has already made provision for it. And for us, in all our promises, God has already given us our yes and our amen. Because the son was not born, the day was not created the day he came. The son had always been. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, the son is given. And he will sit on the throne of his father, David. Let's rise and pray this morning.